Let's just take a moment and pray together as we uh, begin this series. Our God and our Father, we thank you that we have been instructed by your word to wait upon you. And Lord, in in times of trial, in times of confusion, in times of heartache and sorrow, uh, there is no better place for us to be than waiting upon you. And yet our restless souls, Lord, frantically search for alternatives. We desire to alleviate the pain. We look for ways out. We try to discover ways that we can avoid the crisis and the confusion. But Lord, we are reminded again and again that in the midst of all of these things, Lord, you draw us to yourself, that you call to us, Lord, that you uh, invite us to walk the way. And we pray, Father, that you might enable us, Lord, as we read your word, as we consider your word, as we meditate on your word, that your spirit might guide us, Lord, as we might uh, glean from lamentations those lessons that are most appropriate for us where we are right now, individually, corporately, as your people, nationally, as a country, Father. For Lord, we, we ask this for your glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Sad songs say so much. Yes, there are times when we all need to share a little pain. And ironing out the rough spots is the hardest part when memories remain. And it's times like these when we all need to hear the radio, because from the lips of some old singer, we can share the troubles we already know. Turn them on, turn them on, turn on those sad songs. When all hope is gone, why don't you tune in and turn them on? They reach into your room, just feel their gentle touch. When all hope is gone, sad songs say so much. If someone else is suffering enough, oh, to write it down. When every single word makes sense, then it's easier to have those songs around. The kick inside is in the line that finally gets to you, and it feels so good to hurt so bad and suffer just enough to sing the blues. So turn them on, turn them on, turn on those sad songs. When all hope is gone, why don't you tune in and turn them on? They reach into your room, just feel their gentle touch. When all hope is gone, you know sad songs say so much. Why is it that sad songs say so much? Could it be, as Job says, that man is born to trouble as surely as the sparks fly upward? Or as it's recorded again in the book of Job, that man who is born of woman is a few days and full of trouble. Mark Rogop writes, every human being has the same opening story. Life begins with tears. It's simply a part of what it means to be human. To cry is human. But if that's true, if we are born to trouble as the flock, as the sparks fly upward. As we are full of uh, trouble all of our few days, if it is as it's said in Jesus' words, you will have tribulation in this world, why is it that only about 5% of evangelical songs sung in the church today are sad songs? Why is it that 
modern music is so absent of like the songs we just sung. Is it that Christians are exempt from suffering? Do we not feel pain when we suffer? Are there no questions that need asking? Are there no fears that need addressing? Are there no doubts that need expressing? Lamentations is a series of sad songs. It is a five-fold collection of heartache. As one author writes, Lamentations confronts us as a stranger who offers us an unasked for, unwanted, and yet priceless gift, the poetry of pain. J. Sidlow Baxter wrote, This pathetic little five-fold poem, The Lamentations, has been called an elegy written in a graveyard. It is a cloudburst of grief, a river of tears, a sea of sobs. Another writer says the book of Lamentations is a funeral song on the death of the city of God. Lamentations provides us a window into profound grief, and its existence in the Holy Scriptures encourages us to consider the importance of lament in our daily lives. In other words, we need to learn how to lament. We need to learn how to grieve as believers. Now, it's true that we do not grieve as those who have no hope, but that does not mean we do not grieve. And while it is true that Lamentations was not written by Christians for Christians, we know that all scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and for instruction in righteousness. As Rogop writes in Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy, to cry is human, but to lament is Christian. And if sad songs say so much, how much more do the sad songs of Jeremiah inspired by the Holy Spirit, have to say. As we approach this series, I have two goals for this month. The first one is to consider the instruction found in Lamentations, to understand the message of the book and to draw lessons appropriate for us in our own situation, personally, corporately as the body of Christ, nationally, and as a nation. And to also explore what lament means as a prayer, a form of prayer, a turning to God in the midst of loss, grief, pain, suffering, and sorrow. Briefly put, to lament is not simply grumbling or complaining. It is not merely venting either. To lament is to turn to God in our grief and sorrow and pour out our hearts to him in honest, transparent prayer. It is a turning to God, voicing our woes, bringing our pleas, remembering his promises, and choosing to trust in the midst of circumstances where trust defies logic. How lonely sits the city that was full of people. She has become like a widow who was once great among the nations. She who was a princess among the provinces has become a forced laborer. 
She weeps bitterly in the night, and her tears are on her cheeks. She has none to comfort her among all her lovers. All her friends have dealt treacherously with her. They have become her enemies. Judah has gone into exile under affliction, under harsh servitude. She dwells among the nations, but she has found no rest. All her pursuers have overtaken her in the midst of her distress. The roads of Zion are in mourning because no one comes to the appointed feasts. All her gates are desolate. Her priests are groaning. Her virgins are afflicted. And she herself is bitter. Her adversaries have become her masters. Her enemies prosper. For the Lord has caused her grief. Because of the multitude of her transgressions, her little ones have gone away as captives before the adversary. All her majesty has departed from the daughter of Zion. Her princes have become like deer. They found no pasture, and they have fled without strength before the pursuer. In the days of her infliction and homelessness, Jerusalem remembers all her precious things that were from the days of old when her people fell into the hand of adversity and no one helped her. The adversary saw her. They mocked at her ruin. Jerusalem sinned greatly. Therefore, she has become an unclean thing. All her honored, her despise her because they have seen her wickedness. Even she herself groans and turns away. Her uncleanness was in her skirts. She did not consider her future. Therefore, she has fallen astonishingly. She has no comforter. See, O Lord, my affliction, for the enemy has magnified himself. The adversary has stretched out his hand over all her precious things. For she has seen the nations enter her sanctuary, the ones whom he commanded that they should not enter into her congregation. All her people groan, seeking bread. They have given their precious things for food to restore their lives themselves. See, O Lord, and look, for I am despised. Is it nothing to all you who pass this way? Look and see. If there's any pain like my pain, which was severely dealt out to me, which the Lord inflicted on the day of his fierce anger. The beauty and the tragedy of lamentations. Historically, this is a funeral dirge. Five poems collected together that commemorate the destruction of the city of Jerusalem. From the, from the earliest accounts, this has been believed to be the words of Jeremiah. In fact, the Septuagint begins with this introduction, and I paraphrase, that there sat Jeremiah weeping by the gates of Jerusalem as he wrote the Lamentations. This was the great... That was the greatest catastrophe that the nation of Israel had ever experienced. It was the end of their autonomy and existence as a sovereign people. Judah had seen the worst thing happen. Not only were uh, their lands seized by a foreign power, not only was their walls breached, but their city was leveled. It was razed to the ground, its temple desecrated and then destroyed. Her leadership dragged into captivity. The king 
after watching his children executed right before his eyes, had his eyes plucked out so that the last thing he would ever remember was the death of his children. It is a striking series of poems. One commentator writes, Lamentations is perhaps the best example in the Bible of a combination of divine inspiration and human artistic ability. Chapters one through four <clears throat> are four separate poems, each with chapters one and two and chapter four with 22 verses. 22 corresponding to the number of letters in the Hebrew alphabet. Every verse in the Hebrew begins with a different letter of the Hebrew alphabet in chapters 1, 2, and 4. Chapter 3 has three times the number of verses as chapters 1, 2, 4, and 5. 66 verses. But in that chapter, the acrostic is different. Instead of each verse beginning with the first letter of each Hebrew letter of the alphabet, each three verses begins with those letters. And so the first three verses begin with a left, the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Chapter five has the same number of verses, but there the acrostic breaks down. There is no acrostic in chapter five. Why this structure? Why this intentional organization of grief? It's almost as if Jeremiah, under the inspiration of the Spirit, is giving us the A to Z of sorrow, the A to Z of grief, the A to Z of emotional torment of one soul leaving one shattered. And then at the very end, there's nothing left to give. Chapter 5 ends with no acrostic. Why? Because the soul is shattered. There's no more attempt at organization. There's nothing left but a heartfelt cry for God to intervene. If we look at <clears throat> Lamentations carefully, what we discover is that it is a beautiful collection of poems where there are multiple voices. In chapter one, there are two voices that we hear. There is the narrator who appears on the scene from the very first verse as almost like a reporter broadcasting from the scene. How lonely sits the city that was full of people. Describing objectively the tragedy that is unfolding before his eyes. And then periodically, Lady Jerusalem, Madam Zion, Mistress Judah, breaks in. Breaks in. See, O Lord, my affliction, for the enemy has magnified himself. See, O Lord, and look, for I am despised. Study tip. Pay very close attention to the pronouns and lamentations. They give you clues as to who is speaking and also of whom is being spoken. In addition to the narrator and Lady Jerusalem, there is the prophet. And of course, one wonders whether the narrator and the prophet are the same person. But the narrator speaks in the third person, where in chapter 3 we're introduced to another voice. It's a male voice but who speaks in the first person. Is it there that Jeremiah gives voice to his own feelings and identifies himself in that way? And then in chapter five, there is the congregation where the people of God with the personal pronoun we 
we, we cry out to God. And as I said the last time we were together, what is strangely missing from this entire book are those comforting, challenging words, thus says the Lord. It is a voice that is strangely absent in the midst of all of this sorrow, in the midst of all this confusion and chaos. There is only one reference in the entire book, out of all the chapters and of all the verses, there is only one reference of God speaking. And it is not God himself who speaks. It is the prophet recalling what God said at the end of the book, what the congregation hears, and what does that voice say to them? Do not fear. One word, one sentence, one message. Do not fear. So as we look at this situation in chapters 1 and chapter chapters 1 and 2, why is the woman here? Why is this woman? Why is she sitting so lonely? The image here is of Lady Jerusalem, and she is a widow. It's as though God has died. Her husband has abandoned her. She is left desolate. How lonely she sits. She has become like a widow. Why is she in this situation? Well, in chapter 1, verse 8, we read that she sinned greatly. This was the prophetic fulfillment of warning after warning, prophet after prophet, that God had sent to his people. And it's not like they didn't know he kept his promises because Israel had already, the northern kingdom, had already been taken into captivity and destroyed. And even Lady Jerusalem herself, she confesses in verse 18 of chapter 1, The Lord is righteous, for I have rebelled against his command. Well, how has this calamity happened? We know historically that in 586 B.C. that the Babylonian armies under the command of Nebuchadnezzar had surrounded and had laid siege to Jerusalem and had breached the walls. And we read of the accounts in, in, in the Chronicles and in the Kings of how the king tried to flee and break through the siege and was captured. We read about the empire that had, in the historical record, about how there was rising empires and falling empires in the Near East. The Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, the Romans, these are all part of the historical record. Who has done this? In verse 14 of chapter 1, we read these words as Lady Jerusalem recounts her suffering. The yoke of my transgressions is bound by his hand. They are knit together. They have come upon my strength. They come upon my neck. He's, my neck. He's made my strength fail. The Lord has given me into the hands of those against whom I am not able to stand. The imagery here is that God has taken her sins and he's wound them into like a chain of oppression. And he's placed them on her neck. In chapter 2, we see the enormity of this. How the Lord has covered the daughter of Zion 
with a cloud in his anger. Verse 2, the Lord has swallowed up. He is not spared. Verse 3, in his anger, he has cut off all the strength of Israel. Verse 4, he has bent his bow like an enemy. Verse 5, the Lord has become like an enemy. He has swallowed up Israel. He has swallowed up its palaces. He has destroyed its strongholds. He has violently treated his tabernacle. The Lord has rejected his altar. He has abandoned his sanctuary. The Lord disturbed, determined to destroy the wall of daughter, his daughter Zion. He has stretched out the line. He has not restrained his hand. There is no equivocation on this. The Lord has done this. So what lessons can we draw from Lamentations 1 and 2. Well, we can see that one of the reasons why we lament is because of sin. We sorrow and we grieve because of sin. Now, in the world around us, we understand that we live in a sinful world. We live in a world where we're not in the garden anymore. There is a sin-cursed world. But what is striking about Lamentations is that this is written in response to God's response to the nation's sin. And it's striking because the, the writer of Lamentations does not focus on her sin. He focuses on her suffering. The narrator does not want to focus on her sin, as one writer writes, but nor does he minimize or ignore it. It's an acknowledgement that these things have happened because of sin, but the focus of Lamentations is on the suffering. It's almost as if the writer of Lamentations is saying, yes, I have sinned, but look how much misery my sin has produced in my life. God, have mercy. Jay Sidlow Baxter writes, high calling flaunted by low living inevitably issues in deep suffering. Let me say that again. High calling flaunted by low living inevitably leads to deep suffering. He goes on to write, since the divine Sin bearer bore all the sins of all believers. God never punishes his born-again children when they sin. The legal aspect was comprehensively dealt with at Calvary. The relationship is now that of a father and child rather than that of a judge and a culprit. Yet the sins of Christian believers bring grievous chastisings and chastening upon them. And we may well heal, heed Paul's appeal Walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you are called. It is a sad truth that we suffer because of sin. Sometimes it's the sin of others. In other words, people sin against us. Or it's the fact that we live in a world full of sinners. And the multiplication of that sinfulness, like creation, groans. We groan with it. But sometimes it's also because we're sinners. 
and we make bad choices or that we are selfishly building ourselves little kingdoms that God needs to tear down or that we idolize or value things more than we should. But whatever the cause, the second lesson is about God's sovereignty. And chapter two is very uncomfortable. It is very uncomfortable because the Lamentations do not blame the Babylonians specifically. They don't try to, to uh, excuse what happens or try to create a way to defend God and excuse God, but rather the Lamentations identify the source. It's not the Babylonians. They're a secondary cause. It's not Nebuchadnezzar and his pride and his arrogance and his unjust tributary system that's causing this. This is God himself, that God is sovereign. And so if the first lesson is about suffering, the second lesson is about sovereignty. That God is never surprised by our suffering. He's never unprepared or shocked. The secondary causes, whatever they might be, do not upend God's sovereignty. The comfort is there, but this is also the cross that we must bear, that God designed the suffering to be a part of his unfolding plan. His plan, not ours. Not just for us, but for the ages. And so sometimes we go through things and we ask, what's the reason for this? And why is this happening? But the reality is, and I say this with all grace I can possibly muster, it may not ultimately be about you. In other words, what happens to me as an individual may just be a part of a grander scheme and a grander plan. And for me, I might not be able to ever understand why I go through the things that I go through, that there's no other side, this side of eternity. That when I suffer, I may ask God, why God? And heaven remains silent. That it may not be until I'm on the other side that I will see the majesty and the glory But if there's not just lessons about suffering and sovereignty, there is also lessons about the Savior. Did you hear it? Did you hear it? Listen again. See, O Lord, and look, for I am despised. Is it nothing to you all who pass this way? Look and see if there is any pain like my pain, which was severely dealt out to me, which the Lord inflicted on the day of his fierce anger. Let me ask you, was there ever a day like the day of the Lord's fierce anger, like the cross. Are not these words here because they 
foreshadow. They typify. They point to the one who, as Isaiah would say, he is despised and rejected of men. A man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Look, all you who pass this way, is it nothing to you? And so the voice of our Savior cries out. We can hear the voice of Christ in this verse. And what does it say to us? God suffers with those whom he chastises. And what do we see in chapter 2, verse 11? My eyes fail because of tears. My spirit is greatly troubled. My heart is poured out on the earth because of the destruction of the daughter of my people when little ones and infants faint in the street. What did Jesus do when he approached Jerusalem? Now, as he drew near, he saw the city and he wept over it. We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive grace and mercy to help. In time of need. Rogop writes, the Bible tells us that God is holy and mankind is fallen short of his glory. The result of this sinful rebellion is death. Death. The effect of our collective treason is that groaning of creation under this brokenness. We, along with the entire created order, long for a better day. Therefore, a Christian should understand that beneath every painful aspect of our humanity is the reality of sin. Every death, every war, every just injustice, every loss, every hurt, every tear owe their existence to sin. It has affected everything. Without sin, there would be no lament. And therefore we pray, keep us, Lord, O oh, keep us cleaving to thyself and still believing till the hour of our receiving promised joys with thee. Then we shall be where we would be. Then we shall be what we should be. Things that are not now, nor could be, soon shall be our own. But until then, remember to cry is human, but to lament is Christian. Let us pray. Our God, as we have meditated this morning on this passage, we pray that we would take seriously our sin and that if we are undergoing suffering and sorrow and loss at this moment, that it would be a, a wake-up call for us to examine our hearts, our motives, our attachments, our affections, that we might be boldly transparent and honest with you about our feelings and our fears, but we would trust in you that you would keep us cleaving, still believing. Till our promised. Always with thee. Until then.
Teach us, Lord. We pray. For your glory. And in your name. Amen.